Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome once again to More Perfect Union. I'm Peter Jay with me, the founder of More Perfect Union, the illustrious, the inimitable, the ever wonderful and wise, always seeking wisdom, Frank Falvey. Frank is back. I feel, Frank, like I need to put some echo on that because it's Frank, 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 Frank. Anyway, it's really nice to have you back. Joining Frank and joining me, of course, are Dr. Natalie Alinos. Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and our representative on the Hill, Jeff Roy. Good morning, gang. Good morning. Hi, Frank. Glad to have you here, buddy, with us. Thank morning. You. Good morning. That said, Frank wanted to put something on the table this morning that I think is an important discussion. And that is, uh, I'll set it up for you, Frank, the differentiation, if you will, between COVID among the masses and COVID among seniors. It opens up and forces us to address issues of ageism, the stats behind COVID with respect to people who are already of advanced age, 60, 65 and up. And Frank, I'm going to give you the floor. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you about the part about wisdom. And in my whole life, that has been a goal of mine is to seek wisdom and knowledge. I've always loved the book of Proverbs in uh, the turn, turn part from Ecclesiastics. And on my TV show behind me is the owl that I took a, uh, a film at at the Bronx Zoo. I don't know if the owl is probably long since passed on, but the owl is a, a, a symbolism of seeking wisdom. It's a and great shot, by the way. Wonderful photo. It, it is. And the part here about COVID is to me, this is a senior disease and a senior virus. It is not a, anyone else's. And, and let me tell you the reason why. 880,000 people have died of COVID. 654,000 of them, or 75%, are over the age of 65. And once you get over the age of 85, I think it nearly wipes everyone out. Just on a, a, a by sex, 309,000 are women and 345,000 are men. And if you look at the numbers, the men, most deaths are, be, are 65 and, the, and then uh, the next age break 126 and then it goes down to 98. And the women are exactly the opposite way. They start low and then increase as they age. Um, so I would particularly not only like to 
explore, first of all, where are these seniors living? How, who's affecting them? Are they living in their house? Are they living in uh, 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 retirement centers? Or do they own condos? Are they in uh, uh, urban poor neighborhoods? And who's affecting them? Is it the family? Is it staff? Uh, is it going out? The other kind of part is medically, how are they being treated? And, uh, you know, who, who are they? Uh, I believe this has changed the culture of senior living. Uh, I go to Stop and Shop Market Basket, and I see now tons of people uh, really putting up groceries that either are delivered or are picked up. Uh, society, I mean, I go to the movies quite a bit. There's no one at the movies. I mean, that's the safest place to go. So I think society news people have never, ever in the last year and a half mentioned seniors. Uh, I think they're only mentioning hot button items like children. Could you give us a background of where to begin, Natalie, Nat about uh, seniors and, and how this virus and who is it affecting Thanks, Frank. And yes, you're absolutely right. Since the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, it has been everyone, you know, above the age of 65 who has been at highest risk of dying. You know, early on, we had these horrific stories of nursing homes um, here in Massachusetts, too, you know, of, of nursing homes and other sort of negligence, truly negligence um, that led to the death of entire, you know, entire sort of portions of our elder population, we started doing better. Um, and, you know, there was the prioritization of vaccines going to those in the 65 plus, but you're absolutely right. COVID as a disease definitely kills people, um, older people first, uh, those with any sort of underlying what we call sort of conditions, um, and also has interesting gender. You talked about the women women, men sort of dynamics. And there are also some interesting or, or sad racial dynamics where actually we find younger Americans of color dying. You know, that's sort of the data. And, you know, I think it's important to say that it's not the flu because it is something that is so deadly, so contagious. Um, and children, you're right, have been getting a lot of attention. The media right now is, you know, up in arms around, you know, what are we doing about children? Are we opening schools? You know, but it's important to recognize that children don't live in isolation. There are many children who live with their grandparents. There are many children. And while, you know, early on, we didn't want to label children vectors, you know, that's how we think about them in the flu. We vaccinate children for the flu because we don't want them to get their grandparents sick. Um, even though, you know, similarly, you know, there is this dynamic interfamily dynamics that are important. So when we're thinking about public health, even if we know who is our highest risk group, we may need to take measures to protect everyone because, you know, of something that contagious, you don't want a child going to visit their grandparent and putting them at risk. With COVID, the other part of uncertainty, um, Frank, is that there is this whole unknown around long COVID, right? So yes, mortality is the main issue that we think about and who's dying. The statistics are right, you know, 75 percent. But I wouldn't say that it is not a concern to everyone else, because if you're going to have other 
conditions for the rest of your life because you were exposed as a child to to COVID, you know, we should do everything we can to protect those children. So even if it's rare that you would have a serious, you know, it's rare that you would die as a child from COVID, but we don't know how rare it is that you would have long-term complications. That's just to complicate the fact that to say, I fully agree with you that, you know, older Americans are the ones who are at the highest risk of dying. But it is, you know, in order for us to be doing what we need to be doing, we need to re recognize that all of us have some risks, especially because of the unknown around long COVID. Um, I'll, I'll let others talk a little bit before we jump into about, you know, what it is. But I, I also agree with you that, you know, it's been the, the mental health toll, I think, the fear, uh, knowing that you are at high risk if you are, say, above the age of 65 or above the age of 85, how that impacts whether you're going out, the isolation. You know, I spoke to some some when when I was running for for Congress, I spoke to some folks who were you know in their seventies, and they said you know please don't tell my daughter that you've seen me out at this cafe because she will you know so sort of like the younger you know the fifty year olds were telling their mom like do not leave the house. She was like I can't I can't not leave the leave the house. I know I'm at risk, but I'm taking these risks. So recognizing that the social isolation is a huge huge has always been uh, a huge challenge for for those who are um, you know over sixty five and how that comes together with the advice to stay socially isolated, you know, it's it's contradictory and, and difficult. Natalia, do you think you could speak to why it is that seniors are so susceptible to COVID and, and what it is that makes this uh, category of uh, individuals so much at risk? So there's two things happening. Um, you know, one is, you know, in epidemiology, we talk about the risk of getting sick and then the risk of dying if you've gotten sick. So those are two different pathways. So, you know, the risk of getting sick, if you are a senior living at home on your own, it can be pretty minimal if you have someone to bring food to you, you know, but if you're living in a congregate setting, meaning in a nursing home or with other seniors where people are coming in and out, then your risk of being exposed to the virus is pretty high. In terms of, you know, so that's kind of the exposure mechanism. And we do know that frontline workers, grocery store workers, other kind of people who aren't able to work from home, they also have heightened risk of getting sick. But if you're a 18 year old working at Trader Joe's and you get sick, it's very different from if you're 85 and you know, living in a nursing home, because that takes us to the next category, which is once sick, how good is your body? How able is your body to fight the infection? Um, and unfortunately, the older you are, the harder that is with, with the coronavirus a, and with other things. Yeah, go ahead. It has to be a matter of robustness. It's, that's really what it is. Our robustness of our immune exactly. system fades We're, over time. Exactly. And then sadly, even if you're vaccinated, vaccines don't work as well um, when you're older. So for example, my father-in-law who is um, almost 80, he has gotten the vaccine and was boosted and still got COVID, you know, and it's not, and it wasn't, it was pre-Omicron. It was, it's just that the vaccines simply don't work as well. So you have even the one tool that we all have to protect ourselves is just not working as well. If you're either, um, you know, just because of, of the way you're your immune response works. You get vaccinated, your body builds up antibodies, but if you're in older age, your your body just doesn't build up those antibodies well enough, whether it's to the vac to the vaccine, you know, to protect you from future infection, or when you're actually getting it. So it's nothing, you know, it's nothing that we can really do about it. And so our solution is we need to protect 
um, our elderly. And, and that's where, uh, Frank, I think a big failure was that we weren't, for example, putting in place really rigorous kind of infectious control measures in nursing homes, making sure. I mean, I'm still surprised that mandates, I feel like not everywhere in the country, there aren't mandates for people who are working in nursing homes to be vaccinated. You know, we need to, in order to protect the residents, you need to make sure that everybody around them, anybody who's coming in or working with those people is lowering their risk of infection, because that's just how it works. It's interesting uh, in that uh, I tracked uh, COVID early on and the mathematics of the early statistics uh, in the most general way indicated that COVID was approximately 30 times more deadly than the flu in terms of general statistics. If you did the math and you looked at the number of follow-on deaths two weeks after an infection, those were the numbers that you would come up with. Uh, and I, I touted that statistic as one being, look, you have to take this seriously. This is not the flu. Stop thinking of it as a weird flu. It's more than that, much more than that. But even in those numbers, part of it was that we were still learning how to treat it in a general way. Uh, we were still learning about uh, the efficacy of certain things that we could do for patients in the hospital uh, to assist them and get them past the worst days. But even that said, that number didn't really reflect, as Frank points out, the skew in the death rate uh, as as age rises. While it was, you know, approximately in the first days, it was approximately three to three and a half percent of the general population. But that number was a whole lot higher in the double digits. Uh, deep into the double digits among the very elderly in terms of if you got COVID for many of advanced age, it was a death sentence. Yeah. And I think the numbers now I looked at, you know, there's a Johns Hopkins kind of, and it, we don't know exactly how many more times deadly it is than the flu, but people estimate that it's at least 10 times more deadly, even more. And for some subgroups, as you mentioned, it would be, it would be higher. You know, the World Health Organization estimates that about 300,000 to 600,000 people die of flu-related causes across the world every year. So, you know, the flu is not something also that, you know, and that's why we get flu vaccines every year. And that's why they're mandatory in many places, you know, because it it's not a great thing, but it's mostly, you know, but but there's this conversation of, you know, we're moving towards an endemic state, meaning that this is something we're going to have to live with and what is the new normal and all of that. It the Endemic doesn't mean that it's, you know, mild. Endemic just means that we need to figure it out. And I think that's a right. really important distinction. You know, we know that tuberculosis, malaria, those are endemic and they kill so many people across the world still today. Um, it's not something we would have wanted to get to, um, but it, and it doesn't mean that we can lower all our guards because as Frank said, that basically means turning our backs to those who remain at really high risk. Um, and they are, 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 are older, um, you know, family members and friends and those who are immunocompromised who can't, you know, um, sort of. So, yeah, exactly. I remember one of my very first memories. You know, we all have those glimmers of our first lives when we are preschoolers, rugrats, call them what you will. But there are little snapshots that exist in there of the very first things that that we can recall. I remember being in the parking lot. I was probably all of maybe four, early four at that. 
And I remember looking up at a window, which was probably on the third floor of Malden Hospital, to wave at my grandmother. And I wasn't allowed in the building, but they could drive me there so that way I could wave, hi. And I really didn't understand the implications of all that. And even today, uh, the notion of young children in hospitals is taken quite seriously. Because as you pointed out, and this isn't a pejorative statement, they are vectors, technically speaking, uh, they can be sources of spread. Part of it is that, you know, small children are still so young. And while you try to inculcate a discipline of, of cleanliness and so on, it's difficult for them to appreciate the ramifications. And so it is something to be managed, particularly among larger multi-generational families. You know, as we go through this discussion and I'm listening to the conversation, I'm thinking of the attempts uh, and the work we have done from a policy-making standpoint in terms of, uh, you know, making the vaccine available, encouraging people to get it, having mask mandates. And uh, it, it frightens me to think of the enormous pushback we get from so many folks saying, uh, you can't force me to get a vaccine. You can't force me to uh, wear a mask, and uh, the science uh, is not there to justify these measures that we're taking. And, uh, you know, that's so contrary uh, to what the truth is. And, uh, you know, we're going through this pandemic in an age of misinformation and the spreading of misinformation over social media. And it's such a tough battle. And, you know, in the face of this great risk, to our senior population, it's striking to me that we are still facing uh, these battles today. And I'm curious, you know, what other folks uh, think about that. I mean, uh, I, I still get emails and phone calls urging me to prohibit vaccine mandates and to prohibit mask mandates and, and all of those uh, efforts that we have taken from a public health standpoint. And, uh, it just seems to contradict everything we're talking about this morning in terms of protecting our senior population. And I'd love to hear what other folks think. Well, I happen to uh, thoroughly agree with Frank's premise that uh, I think those of us in the media are letting down not only our senior citizens, but also uh, by not focusing on that aspect of the, uh, of the virus, we're not helping to to uh, encourage or spread the proper information. Uh, the other thing I think is happening is that the the 24-hour news cycle does not lend itself to what I would call teachable moments. In other words, we're not providing the scientific basis or the rational critical thinking that's necessary for us to analyze whether or not we are trying to, through policy as well as through our actions, uh, protect our most vulnerable. And the focus on children uh, in some ways is uh, is sensationalized to the point where we forget the other end of the spectrum. Uh, because in, in as much as children are vectors uh, or carriers, the receptacles uh, are the seniors. In other words, they are the most vulnerable when it comes to not only contracting the disease, but also the more severe uh, outcomes. So 
The question really is, how do we, uh, and I don't know if we can, social media is overrun with disinformation. The news cycle, albeit the news media, tries to uh, sort of hit on all aspects. Seniors dying, as Frank pointed out, is not uh, one of the more uh, encouraging or, uh, or saleable kinds of, uh, uh, of programming. Uh, and so they're ignored. Uh, and I happen to be a part of that group uh, in terms of the senior citizens. And in many instances, I know me and other senior citizens feel rather put upon and alone uh, because you walk into a store. Uh, I walked into a store yesterday and uh, there was no even no indication that, OK, if you're vaccinated, OK, you have the choice of wearing a mask or not. Um, it's just that no. We don't require masks. Nobody has to wear a mask, uh, which always makes me feel vulnerable uh, because I never know who's vaccinated and who's not. I mean, I think that the percentages in our community here in Franklin um, is probably higher than in some communities. But for sure, when uh, the further south I go, the further west I go, the more vulnerable I feel. Not Leo. No, it's oh. interesting to me that um, the uh, person or the, the two musicians who made national headlines in the last week, uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, who both are senior citizens themselves, and they're taking on this uh, disinformation and misinformation campaign that has been going on on Spotify. And uh, you know that some of the uh, younger musicians uh, who are out there m may have taken a similar stance to what uh, these, you know, uh, older musicians had taken, and I hope they uh, fall in line because that truly is uh, the only way we can combat this uh, disinformation campaign that's out there. Now, Leah, going back, do we have any statistics where these seniors are living before they get the coronavirus? And do we have any information about the social economic person that's old, that is dying. Are there any, are we gathering any other background information? And, and lastly, what, what are we putting in place to tell seniors or, or condominiums or nursing homes? Are, are we, is anyone actively coming up with a standard of care, uh, even if seniors are living in their own house? Is there anyone reliable working to divulge information of, of how they should live this life at their age? So, Frank, I don't have all the answers, and I think it's worth coming back to some of this. There, There is, you know, in terms of what data is being collected, we do know people's age when they, you know, when they die. We know their race, ethnicity. We often, uh, we know kind of their location. If they were living in a nursing home, I think that's not like standard kind of, um, you know, death certificate sort of information, but there has been a lot of inquiry into it. And I would say that my, you know, I'd have to go back and look at the data, 
that the vast, you know, you have a much higher chance of having been infected and dying of COVID if you were living in congregate settings. We know that to be the case, whether, you know, in, in other sort of congregate settings too. So there have to be, you know, and, and there are people trying to improve the standards in those settings, making sure that caregivers, visitors, you know, putting in place measures, ensuring that people have PPE who work there, um, you know, so there are measures that can be taken to protect seniors living in congregate settings. Now, to your question about, you know, living at home, if you are, um, you know, where are you getting your information? I don't think there has been a campaign that has been targeted specifically to that demographic. And you're right, that that actually is surprising. You know, some of the campaigns that I've seen are around, you know, good mask use, right? So as Michael talked about, you see people not wearing masks, but masks are a really good way to protect yourself. But as we know uh, now, there are different qualities of masks, right? Some are the cloth masks are not great, uh, but you can get high filtration, you know, the equivalent of KF94s, KN95s. Frank, you wear a beard, like you're not going to get a perfect seal, but you're going to, you don't wear, did you say you wear a beard? You have a beard? Anyways, you're not going to be no. able to. <laughs> why I, why the beard is so long is I've determined that a barbershop probably is not the safest place for a senior to go to. Exactly. And so <laughs> I've avoided, you know, I've really avoided uh, getting my uh, January 1st uh, beard trimmed back down to an inch. So, so you're right. Anything that is indoors where you need to remove your mask is not the safest place. Um, and that's why we see winter surges because, you know, we're more likely to be indoors, taking off our masks, um, con you know, getting together with family in the summer. If there's a barber shop that is, um, you know, able to do haircuts or things outside, I would encourage you to, to do that. Um, but you know, in terms of kind of some of the other statistics and demographics we know, we do know that, you know, the way that um, you know, racial health inequities are really important in this country to, to acknowledge. And one way that works is that actually our Black and Latinx and other sort of communities of color just don't make it to the age of 85 and above. So actually the 85 and above category in the U.S. is predominantly white because people are dying younger in racial and ethnic sort of groups. So in some ways, um, that's just how racism works. It, it accumulates across your life course. Um, one statistic that I saw, which is pretty pretty shocking and links the children today is that one, that more than 140,000 children have lost a primary or secondary caregiver due to the pandemic. That's a parent or a grandparent who was primarily taking care of them. And 65% of those who lost a uh, primary caregiver due to the pandemic are of racial, ethnic, um, sort of uh, minority status. So, you know, there are inequities that are happening along age, along geography, income. And for those, it's not because of biology. It's because, for example, if you are an immigrant in this country living in a multi-generational home where it's the great grandparent, the grandparent, the child and the parent, um, and you know, you're low income. So the mom of the young child is out working two or three jobs. The child is going to school, but doesn't have access to a good mask or is in a school that doesn't have high ventilation. Then the risk of that grandparent or great grandparent who's living in that home is higher of dying. So we need to understand that, you know, 
there are inequities. It's not just age, it's age and income. Do you have your own house? Do you have the way to protect yourself? And it's complicated. I think looking back, uh, people have said we should have done much, much more early on in nursing homes. And I think there's still a lot we can be doing. Can I just give you some numbers by uh, ethnic group? 562,000 are white individuals that have died. Non-Hispanic Black, 127,000. Non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaskan Natives, 10,000. Non-Hispanic Asian, 28,000. Non-Hispanic Native Hawaiian or Pacific Island, 2,000. And non-Hispanic, more than one race, 3,000. Now, those numbers don't relate to the total population. In other words, 126,000 could be a higher percentage uh, than whites. Exactly. Uh, but but going, going back to what you said, there seems to be a lack of trying to work on, on solving how people over 65 can, things can, could be put in place to help save them. There seems to be a lack of uh, resources and intent to try to prevent that. Yeah. Now, I have an oddball question, uh, and I always have oddball questions. It came across my mind about a healthcare proxy. I do not have one, and uh, I probably would not want my family to be the healthcare proxy. And yet I learned that even if I signed papers that my family could have no access to my medical information, if I am unconscious or, or not able to make my own decision, it automatically goes to them to make the decision unless I have one or two types of healthcare proxies. Has healthcare proxies with all these seniors dying, is that ever, is that an issue that has ever come up, Jeff? Maybe you'd know better than I do. But is there a place that seniors, is this an important issue for families or seniors to think about? It's um, certainly an important issue for uh, uh, seniors and families to think about because, you know, with a healthcare proxy, uh, you are uh, handing over uh, decisions and very complex and very um, life-altering decisions to somebody else. So you have to have a great deal of trust and faith uh, in that person, and uh, you have to spell out your wishes, uh, you know, clearly. Uh, and I think, you know, many of the healthcare facilities are, you know, encouraging people to have these documents in place um, you know, as part of the uh, the course of treatment. And so I would certainly encourage you, uh, particularly if you have questions or concerns about a family member making that decision uh, for you to, to get that in place. And certainly uh, is, is helpful because, you know, if you need, uh, you know, emergency care and uh, you, or you need a procedure done and there's nobody there to make the decision that puts the medical personnel in an extremely awkward and difficult place, uh, too. And do, do, so do I Jeff, would certainly urge folks to do it. Jeff, 
my observation is why isn't there's two types of healthcare proxies you can have in Massachusetts. One is a clinical one that you do with a clinical technician. The other one is, is a legal document. But why aren't these part of your medical records? Why do you have to just carry them on your on your person to have? Why aren't they automatically incorporated? I mean, the medical I, I records. Think, but I think, uh, again, Frank, there may be a piece of misinformation because they are included in your medical records, at least in the in the facilities that I've been in uh, uh, that I've been in. Uh, the hospitals in particular want a copy and they put it into your medical record. My doctor has, uh, my primary care physician has both my healthcare proxy and my living will. They have that as part of my medical record. And uh, uh, there's another part of that too, your, your knowledge that yes, you can ask to have it become a part of your medical record. So there's no prohibition and there's no reluctance that I have run into personally, at least in the state of Massachusetts, or when I was acting as a healthcare proxy for my son in Illinois. As a matter of fact, uh, once it was part of his medical record, it followed him around. Uh, and I didn't, all I had to do was refer to the fact that it was in his medical record whenever he would go to another facility and they would say, oh, yes, I see it here. So, like Jeff, I would encourage folks to do two things. One, talk to your family. And here is what is important in terms of having both a healthcare uh, proxy uh, and a living will. You need to talk to your family members about it. You need to make the decision on who you think in terms of the lead. Uh, like I have four children, all four of my children are listed uh, with regard to my. Uh, uh, my medical uh, healthcare proxy. However, I have them listed in order. In other words, who is going to take the lead? Um, and if that person's not around, who's second, who's third, who's fourth, with the idea too, that if it's a life determining decision, uh, that they will have to do that together, that it's not a one individual who says, pull the plug. Uh, and that's part of my living will. I also want to just add in here another key point. We live in an age where we're all managing data, and we tend to think of things as being very digital. However, that said, I believe in a hybrid arrangement and the idea of having a copy of your healthcare proxy on paper with you is an absolute surety that it, the information is available where needed, when needed, because here's the paper. I have a copy of it folded up in my wallet. Uh, I have my vaccination card in my wallet. More importantly, I also have my vaccination card, my healthcare proxy, other key documents scanned. And the scans of those key documents are on my smartphone. Yes. Furthermore, the scans of those documents exist as emails that I sent to myself as attachments. I can open up my own email anywhere and I can search for those documents that I sent to myself and I can pull them up in digital form. So I have a repository that's reasonably safe and widely available from my phone, from email and on paper. There's no and question my kids, that my data is available to me. And, and my healthcare proxies all have copies as well. 
uh, exactly. in both forms. They have the hard copies and they have the electronic copies, uh, Pete. So those are, I think, excellent examples of how one needs to digitally protect yourself. Um, and when it comes to COVID, uh, I, you know, I think it's important too to make sure that uh, that those documents are in place because I think as Natalia was alluding to earlier, when when seniors contract COVID, they don't necessarily present in the same way that younger people do. Uh, and some of what happens is is a disorientation and a and a dizziness uh, that may preclude you from making rational decisions. Well, yeah, you know, I most think... people would accuse me of making irrational decisions automatically anyway, because, hey, it's me. <laughs> I mean, I think something that um, is tangentially linked to the, your question, Frank, is about the reluctance we have to have these difficult conversations around death. I mean, I think uh, the one thing that you hear every time is like, I wish I knew what, you know, my grandfather, and my father wanted in terms of end of life, you know, these so many people want to have that information, but they're reluctant to have the conversations early on. And I'm, you know, my my husband right now is in Michigan because his father is in, in not in good shape. And I said to him, I said, you have to have these conversations. So they've had the conversation of where he wants to be buried, but not about end of life, like the last few months. Like, is it, do you want to be at home? Do you want to be in a hospital? Do you want uh, life-saving kind of every intervention? Or do you want to sort of, you know, say you've lived your life. And these are such difficult conversations. And with COVID, uh, many people unexpectedly lost loved ones without having had a chance. And actually, I think the the biggest, one of the biggest tragedies is that many families were not able to grieve because our cultural ways of, you know, we get together to have a funeral, like even all of those were were denied because of this horrible pandemic. Or even in the um, opportunity to be in the hospital in the worst of days. Exactly. So it's it's been, I mean, I think the tragedy of all of end of life, but maybe something that we do want the listeners to to take seriously is like have those conversations. They're difficult, but it will you will feel more prepared when you need to make that call if you are, say, a proxy, that you know what that parent would want. Do they want to be intubated? Do they want to, you know, those decisions uh weigh on on those who are making the decisions if they have no information. So somehow, you know, I, I, I saw somewhere it said it's the, you know, the difficult conversation that parents have to have with their kids is the sex talk. And then with their parents is the death talk. And both of them, we try to avoid them. Uh, but both of them are critically important for everybody's well-being. I would also at this point, uh, it's a great opportunity to make visceral, to visualize what we've been talking about. Uh, one image that comes to mind in the earliest days of COVID, its discovery in the United States, the images that we saw of people being wheeled out on gurneys from Washington State, from the, uh, the senior homes there, and the staff trying to afford them a modicum of privacy, holding up the sheets as they were removed from the buildings in front of the news cameras that were trying desperately to understand what was happening. And the sheer volume of that activity, how quickly it struck, the virality of it, and how it swept through the buildings. No one was expected. We all got cut off guard. Uh, more recently, uh, with respect to where we are, the recalcitrant lot of us who don't want to be vaccinated, don't want to participate in a public solution, 
call it what you will. Some of it's fear, some of it's baseless anger, some of it is just not understandable. But you know, it it sums up Lily Tomlin's line: "We're all in this alone," and I, I sometimes feel that way. Now, it gets me to a question: Given our circumstances, what suggestions can we offer to seniors today to try to shore up their lives, to move smartly? I know the Franklin Senior Center, for instance, struggled with. How do we even have a, an opportunity to open and under what circumstances and what limited activities can we have? Uh, and, and that obviously made it very difficult for seniors who rely so much on those services um, throughout the pandemic. That said, what have I done? Um, I did a lot of buying ahead, even though I couldn't necessarily call up one of the supermarket you know, delivery services. Um, my compromise was, well, if I'm going to go to the store, what do I really want? And what can I store locally long-term? So buy more than what I need now with a target date of when might I need to do that again? I was able to cut my trips to the store down to about 40% of normal. Not a bad thing, a simple thing and not a bad thing. Yes, obviously we restricted our ability to get with other people. We haven't had anybody to the house. You know the drill there. Um, also, I'm fortunate in that the rest of the family's been concerned and respectful, me being the oldest of a generation within our shared families. And so in that sense, it's been good. And I don't know if any of you have other suggestions that you might offer a senior population that would help them better protect themselves. Uh, I, the only thing I was going to say is based on our prior conversation, I think uh, the message is clear from all of us is to get that healthcare proxy, have those difficult conversations, and by all means, uh, you know, uh, encourage those around you that are surrounding you to uh, be aware of the need to be safe in your space and the need to protect you. So uh, those would be the things that I would offer. And I was going to add that, you know, the Biden administration has now made rapid tests and high filtration, high quality masks available to every American. I would say not at the numbers that we need. I think three masks and four tests per family. But if you have the means, that would be really important. So get some really good masks for when you're indoors. Uh, if you go to the movie theater, Frank, like wear the best masks that you can and sit far away from people. You know, some of the choices that we make you know, we we make, but harm reduction is the language we talk about in, in public health. It's like, you can make that same choice and make it safer. So I'm going to the movie theater. I'm not going to order popcorn and eat in the movie theater. I love popcorn. I'll take it on the way out and eat it at home. Um, you know, or I really have my favorite restaurant. I will, you know, order from there, not eat indoors if when the weather permits, eat outside. So there's a lot we can do in terms of making the same decision, but making it safer. And also the most important thing is recognizing your environment at that moment. So at the peak of Omicron, do not go into, you know, avoid everything. Once the rates fall low, then you might be able to bring in more options into your life. But masks and rapids are, are you know, are working well has one, one form of protection. And of course, number number one, if you are a senior and have not gotten your vaccines and your booster, please do that. 
because we know that the risk of dying after you've gotten a vaccine and a booster is much, much lower. So that's the number one everybody can do to protect themselves, wear a high quality mask, avoid indoor places without a mask. So, you know, those are, are not, they're pretty straightforward. Um, they cost money and they cost time. Um, and if you can persuade your family members to also do those things, be vaccinated, wear masks around you, you're basically creating a bubble of protection for, for yourself and your loved ones. I would suggest too, you know, uh, similar to what you said, Frank, about uh, not all of the businesses, uh, even in our community, um, are uh, either have the right information or are trying to help protect those of us who are seniors. But there are a few. Um, I know BJ still runs uh, senior hours when they only let in senior citizens. Uh, I know. Um, some of the grocery stores are still doing that as well, having designated days and hours for senior citizens. Uh, I find that very encouraging and helpful. Uh, it's also a good idea to sort of go at non-busy times if you're gonna get out uh, to places. And like you, Frank, I found the movie theater to be actually one of the safest places around. <laughs> because uh, you know, not only can I spread out and stay uh, uh, socially distanced in some great ways. But I can watch movies almost like you're in the privacy of your living room because there are so few people who are there. And, I, and, uh, and, and even though it's not the same experience, it's still nice to be able to go and see something on the big screen. I, I would also uh, like to say that the culture of the news media, particularly uh, national news media, CNN, ABC, NBC, they're doing a huge disservice because they're picking a, a hot button topics and then they're not addressing in any way what I might feel are more important topics. And like uh, the bills in Congress, like the Biden uh, COVID bill, right? That mm -hmm. has a provision in it that says the government will pay 100% of all funeral costs. Well, I don't know how that's working. I, I, I don't know if people are aware of that. I don't know if funeral directors are, are, are telling, explaining that. And, and again, the news, the people pointing out what's in the news, to me, seem to be missing really the greater part in the, in the details that need, people need to know behind a two-minute blurb? It's a difficult one. Uh, part of it, Frank, is that in that when we watch the news at night, the curated news on the big networks, uh, the difficulty there is they've got approximately 18 minutes to cover everything that happened. And so uh, each story competes with every other story for its space within that 18 minutes that happened between the opening, the closing, the commercials and everything else. And uh, there's a great book about this, by the way, that goes all the way back to the 80s called Megatrends by John Nesbitt. Megatrends is a book predicated on understanding worldwide trends based on what kind of news coverage they get. And, and Nesbitt actually measured column inches of newspapers as well as amounts of minutes of airtime. Now, the difference between a newspaper and airtime is that airtime is, again, constrained to that around 18 minutes for a newscast. 
Now, today we've got the 24-hour news cycle, CNN, Fox, call it what you will, and they can stretch things out as long as they want, almost to the point of just filling time. But newspaper column inches is interesting because they can expand and contract the newspaper as much as they wish. And now, sadly, of course, so many newspapers are struggling, uh, not only as a, as a business, but as a unit of societal measure. Newspapers do more for us than many people realize in terms of a form of communication. Anyway, that said, yes, it's difficult for a story that may not be so visual. The, uh, the expanded death of a senior uh, cohort. And if it's not visual, then it drops in priority in terms of its coverage. And then there's the issue of sensationalism. We can cut this thing so many different ways. But yeah, you're right. How news gets curated and how this story rises above that noise to find a better place in the sun, in the population, um, in, in the social conversation is, is not an easy thing. Anyway, we've covered a lot of ground today. Frank, what do you think? How did we do? I hope people carefully listen to this program and maybe, maybe you would like really to replay and re-listen to the program because one of the intents that we actually really greatly covered is to give information. We really covered a lot of nut, what I call nuts and bolts uh, of what to do and what some of the issues are. And I think this is one of the outstanding parts of, of this to make a more perfect union. We get in to the, to the uh, what I call the weeds. <laughs> we get into the, the weeds. And, and, and please, uh, I think here, here is a, a program that you want to take notes on. Uh, Re-listen to it. Get out your pen and pencil or whatever you do to record, maybe your phone, and record the important information. And Pete, can you give uh, the public uh, how they can uh, contact us? Thanks, Frank. One of the things to understand about this program also, Frank, is that, yes, like all of the programs that we produce on WFPR, you can hear this program again as a podcast. And you can find it as a podcast under More Perfect Union. And also, we will be airing this same program uh, under Frank Presents on the radio uh, in, in your normal time slot as well. So it'll be widely available. That said, if you'd like to respond, if you have thoughts about this or any of our programs on WFPR, you can contact us by email, info, I-N-F-O, at franklin.tv. That's info, I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. We will really love to hear from you. I'm Peter J. And for Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, for Dr. Natalie Alinos, for Representative Jeff Roy, and for you, Frank. Thanks for listening. <laughs>